Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. We went into the vault for today's episode, all the way back to a lecture that Professor Robert Young gave last year at the Columbia Global Center in Amman. We chose this particular lecture because Professor Young offers a historical perspective on an issue facing today's society, migration. Young is the Dean of Arts and Humanities at New York University. As a distinguished humanities scholar and prolific author, he specializes in the history and literature of post-colonialism. In the lecture excerpts you are about to hear, he applies that knowledge to the tragic case of German philosopher Walter Benjamin, drawing parallels between his quest for asylum and the refugee and immigration issues facing today's society. Here, Professor Young sets the scene. 26th of September. <clears throat> Yet another suicide of an asylum seeker. A middle-aged man has been found slumped dead in room four on the second floor. He'd been told the day before that he wouldn't be allowed entry. He just struggled across the border with a few others. They'd arrived exhausted after walking across the mountains for 12 hours, at times climbing upwards on the precipitous, near-vertical stony path on all fours. After looking at their papers, the immigration official had announced to them that they would all be escorted back across the border. For over an hour, he and the others in his party sat before the officials, crying, begging, and then despairing. It is a story that seems both foreign and familiar. A desperate asylum seeker trapped in no man's land at the mercy of an immigration official. His crime Having been deprived of his nationality by his own government the previous year, he had arrived sans nationalité, stateless, without proper documentation from his own government, and no exit visa. For this man, a German-Jewish philosopher named Walter Benjamin, being sent back meant back to Nazi Germany in a concentration camp. Walter Benjamin had been one of a lucky few who'd obtained a golden ticket to escape to the United States, but he was missing one piece, an exit visa from France. A decree issued just a few days earlier had made it illegal to arrive, even in transit, without proper identity documents. That night, faced with the consequences of the official's implacable refusal, a hapless asylum seeker took his own life with an overdose of morphine. He then chose death by his own hand rather than the degraded internment and subsequent death that would have followed his enforced return to France and his journey across Europe to the death camps. With the money found in his pockets, they gave him a Catholic burial there in Spain because his identity documents had been translated to Dr. Benjamin Walter, a Catholic-sounding name. Five years later, when no one had come forward to pay for another five years of graveyard space, his remains were moved to a common grave, untraceable and forgotten, where they are today. Physically standing inside Spain, but without authorization to remain, faced with the prospect of being transported back across the border to internment and extermination in his own country, Walter Benjamin found himself translated into a fugitive anecdote of history, onto the borders of life and death by an unknown officious immigration officer, for whom he was no more than just another, one more, anonymous, fleeing, ex-German Jew. 
Walter Benjamin's suicide is generally discussed in the context of fascism. But this evening, I want to recall that at another level, he was just another of the countless illegal migrants who have moved across Europe in the 20th century. And that his death was the result of the imposition of stringent immigration rules by an immigration officer, a recurrent practice that occurs and continues every day in our own countries and is happening at Kilis on the Turkish border at this very moment. The law passed just before Walter Benjamin arrived in Spain is reminiscent of similar legislation in today's era of immigration. 16th of September 2004, a year after the UK and the USA had invaded Iraq, the then British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, writes in the London Times about the new steps that his government was taking to reduce the number of asylum seekers entering Britain. First, we will be taking firm action to clamp down on those who deliberately conceal their identities. This cannot be acceptable. So from next week, it will be an offence punishable by up to two years in prison to arrive in the UK without documents or to refuse to cooperate with redocumentation by your embassy during the removal process. Just like in Spain in 1941, Tony Blair's 2004 law made it a crime even to arrive. Under Blair's new law, those who arrived without papers like Walter Benjamin, and were refused refuge, were obliged to cooperate with redocumentation by the embassy of the very government from which typically they had been fleeing. If the, if the asylum seeker declined to cooperate, he or she would be placed in jail for two years before being deported back to the country where they were deemed to have come from. Since 2004, these kinds of policies have come to the forefront of the ongoing refugee and migration situation in Europe and elsewhere today. Benjamin's experience with the petty official at the Port Bauer police station and his despairing, self-annihilating response can thus also function, I think, as an emblem for one of the most representative figures of our contemporary era, the refugee, the illegal migrant, the asylum seeker, the unwanted alien to which so many of today's societies uh, oppose their closed, immutable borders. Mass migration has become one of the defining features of the 21st century. What would it mean to put into the longer perspective provoked, to put that into the longer perspective provoked by the figure of Walter Benjamin? What connections can we make between them? One common factor in every modern day migration story is the presence of physical and metaphorical barriers to movement. In his essay on Marseille, Benjamin writes of how, quote, invisible lines divide up the area into sharp, angular territories like African colonies. While colonialism and the invention of the nation-state together instituted our contemporary over-bordered world, the actual lines of those borders are visible and invisible. What Benjamin discovered at Port Bauer was that the border on the map is also a shadow line, an invisible frontier that does not exist. With great physical difficulty and discomfort, he'd walked from Bagnol-sur-Mer in France over the Spanish-French border, sorry, the French-Spanish border, without being apprehended. But then, as now, borders were no longer just at the border. The border is inside and outside the frontier, at visa lines and embassies, at the passport control in the airport, at highway checkpoints, and in camps contained and confined in other nations. It was only when he'd almost finally reached Port Bow and reported at the customs house that stands tomb-like and solitary on the road coming into the town that he encountered there in that building 
the real invisible border uh, of Spain, inside Spain, that he was not liked, that he was not allowed to cross. A brutal shock of modernity. Today, the borders remain, trapping migrants in the grey in between. The condition of trying to cross borders means that the refugee and the asylum seeker always live intimately and continuously on the borders of life and death. Chancing with death is standard fare for the migrant, the refugee, the seeker of asylum, of refuge and safety. Having survived against the odds, crossing treacherous waters, unforgiving journeys across inhospitable lands, war zones littered with landmines or asphyxiating concealment in trucks or trains, repeatedly facing abduction and violence, many asylum seekers today choose death when they experience the hopelessness of their situation on arrival detained in the country to which they've risked everything to smuggle themselves into, reduced to the status of a non-person, neither this nor that, neither thing nor person, like the border itself. The millions of people who are moving across or leaving the continents of Africa, Asia and Latin America form part of a process that's been intrinsic to the development of the nation-state since its formation. Migrants, in other words, today are performing what's always been a deep structural activity of developing nation-states. Under empire, Europe had been heterogeneous, like the Middle East. Nation-states, however, meant that there were millions of people who didn't belong, who were the wrong ethnicity, the wrong religion, the wrong minority in the wrong place. So if from the 17th to the 20th century, it was largely Europeans who migrated across continents, or if not Europeans, then those propelled by Europeans, such as Africans as slaves, uh, or Indians as indentured laborers to Africa, Caribbean, uh, Americas, and the Pacific. Since 1947, it's worked the other way around. Europe has turned from being a continent of emigrants to a continent of immigrants. All over the world for thousands of years, these routes have played all sorts of roles. Routes of trade, routes of war, routes of refugees and slaves, routes of commerce and human beings. What's clear, though, is that although routes change and reform, according to where migrants are coming from and where openings are perceived to be, they always follow a certain set of established routes. Professor Young illustrates this by drawing parallels between Walter's journey down to Spain and the storyline in the movie Casablanca, a classic film in which Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman play refugees fleeing south out of Europe. Casablanca was the transit point situated both at the end of the overland trail from Oran, as it said, in Algeria, and the beginning of the exit route to the Americas via Lisbon. By the time Walter Benjamin had made it to Marseille, France, few ships were leaving, so he had to take the overland route south following an old smuggling route from France to Spain. Those who did manage to make that journey earlier or later to Casablanca found themselves in exactly the same terrain as contemporary asylum seekers who moved north from West Africa or northeast and southern Africa or Asia, making their way to the Canary Island of Fuerteventura across 200 kilometers of dangerous seas west from the Moroccan coast, bizarrely leaving the African continent for a tiny island in the middle of the ocean uh, to get into Europe or to Ceuta 
Spain's colony, one of the remnants of Spanish Morocco on the North African coast. The asylum-seeking traffic, in other words, has reversed its flow since the 1940s, but it actually follows exactly the same established routes to and fro, whichever way it goes, one way or the other. What's interesting uh, um, is, is how, how they shift. Uh, uh, in the beginning of the 21st century, the, the main asylum routes were to the west, focusing on Spain. Now, since the Syrian uh, uh, war, they've, they've shifted to the east, and this is a contemporary representation of the main routes that uh, immigrants are, and refugees are taking. But without an, anyone anticipating it, what's been happening in Syria has begun to change Europe itself. The columns of refugees are producing a new regime of inclusive exclusion, of checkpoints, surveillance, <coughs> internal borders and regulation of flows. In short, the enfolded postcoloniality of population control and insurgency in which we live. As the migration routes have shifted to reflect new populations moving, the numbers have shifted too. Bear in mind that the vast majority of refugees specifically are not in the West, but in Africa, the Middle East and Asia. In the 1970s, there were roughly 3 million refugees worldwide. By 2005, there were 33 million scattered across the world. And by 2015, there were roughly 60 million. And that recent exponential growth of refugees and asylum seekers seems to date roughly from the Balkan conflict, the Russian and U.S. invasions of Afghanistan, the Gulf Wars, and now the Arab revolutions. In the summer of 2015, the heavily policed borders of Fortress Europe broke down in spectacular fashion as the powerless individual migrant turned into a powerful mass. All the technology in the world could not stop a million refugees streaming into Europe from Iraq, Libya and Syria. Fortress Europe was overwhelmed. What happened this summer was simply the numbers of refugees overpowered the system. When a whole country begins to move, the dynamics change rapidly. But however compassionate the response in some quarters, the overall political reaction has been hostile. Europe opened, but then closed its doors. The West proclaims freedom as its core value. It applauds when Arab populations rise up against tyrants seeking their freedom. But that freedom seems to require its corollary, that while Westerners move or travel relatively freely around the world, the non-Western world stays in the same place, or the places to which it suited the West to restrict them. The old British class adage, know your place, meaning stay in the same class position you were born into, is now applied by concrete, coast guard, boats, and high technology to the non-Western world. Professor Young warns against such political barriers to migration, cautioning that restricting freedom doesn't lead to the desired results. Whatever the security installed, migrants will always use ingenuity, determination and high risk to infiltrate barriers or find new routes in order to fulfill their dreams and aspiration. No frontier is without gaps, free of entrances that can be infiltrated, climbed over, burrowed through by the exercise of will. Just as Walter Benjamin took the old smuggling route over the mountains from France to Spain, just as East Germans never gave up trying to breach the Berlin Wall, Refugees and migrants will not give up attempting to climb into Ceuta or cross the Mediterranean Sea to Lampedusa, Malta, Spain, Greece. Just one of many fleeing confidence stability, Walter Benjamin's journey along an ancient path ended tragically there at the border. Will today's millions of migrants have a better fate? 
or will they meet the same unyielding obstacles? Thank you for listening to The Lowdown. If you were hoping to hear more about the parallels between the film Casablanca and Walter Benjamin's refugee journey, we'll have a special short episode coming up soon, so tune in. To hear more inspiring alumni stories, head on over to thelowdown.columbia.edu. This episode was produced by Shanna Crumley and the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities, and with more than 330,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.